Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and the Return of Tarzan. Today, Chapters 21 and 22. Chapter 21. The Castaways. Clayton dreamed that he was drinking his fill of water, pure, delightful drafts of fresh water. With a start, he gained consciousness to find himself wet through by torrents of rain that were falling upon his body and his upturned face. A heavy tropical shower was beating down upon them. He opened his mouth and drank. Presently he was so revived and strengthened that he was enabled to raise himself upon his hands. Across his legs lay Monsieur Turin. A few feet aft, Jane Porter was huddled in a pitiful little heap in the bottom of the boat. She was quite still. Clayton knew that she was dead. After infinite labor he released himself from Thuran's pinioning body, and with renewed strength crawled toward the girl. He raised her head from the rough boards of the boat's bottom. There might be life in that poor, starved frame even yet. He could not quite abandon all hope, and so he seized a water-soaked rag and squeezed the precious drops between the swollen lips of the hideous thing that had but a few short days before glowed with the resplendent life of happy youth and glorious beauty." For some time there was no sign of returning animation, but at last his efforts were rewarded by a slight tremor of the half-closed lids. He shaped the thin hands and forced a few more drops of water into the parched throat. The girl opened her eyes, looking up at him for a long time before she could recall her surroundings. "'Water?' she whispered. "'Are we saved?' "'It is raining,' he explained. "'We may at least drink. Already it has revived us both.' "'Monsieur Thuran,' she asked. "'He did not kill you? Is he dead?' "'I do not know,' replied Clayton. "'If he lives, and this rain revives him—' But he stopped there, remembering too late that he must not add further to the horrors which the girl had already endured. But she guessed what he would have said. "'Where is he?' she asked. Clayton nodded his head toward the prostrate form of the Russian. For a time neither spoke.' "'I will see if I can revive him,' said Clayton at length. "'No,' she whispered, extending a detaining hand toward him. "'Do not do that. "'He will kill you when the water has given him strength. "'If he is dying, let him die. "'Do not leave me alone in this boat with that beast.' "'Clayton hesitated. "'His honor demanded that he attempt to revive Thuran, "'and there was the possibility, too, "'that the Russian was beyond human aid.' It was not dishonorable to hope so. As he sat fighting out his battle, he presently raised his eyes from the body of the man, and as they passed above the gunwale of the boat, he staggered weakly to his feet with a little cry of joy. 
"'Land, Jane!' "'He almost shouted through his cracked lips. "'Thank God! Land!' "'The girl looked, too, and there, not a hundred yards away, "'she saw a yellow beach, and beyond, "'the luxurious foliage of a tropical jungle. "'Now you may revive him,' said Jane Porter, "'for she, too, had been haunted with the pangs of conscience "'which had resulted from her decision to prevent Clayton "'from offering succor to their companion.' It required the better part of half an hour before the Russian evinced sufficient symptoms of returning consciousness to open his eyes, and it was some time later before they could bring him to the realization of their good fortune. By this time the boat was scraping gently upon the sandy bottom. Between the refreshing water that he had drunk and the stimulus of renewed hope, Clayton found strength to stagger through the shallow water to the shore with a line made fast to the boat's bow. This he fastened to a small tree, which grew at the top of a low bank, for the tide was at flood, and he feared that the boat might carry them all out to sea again, with the ebb, since it was quite likely that it would be beyond his strength to get Jane Porter to the shore for several hours. Next he managed to stagger and crawl toward the nearby jungle, where he had seen evidences of profusion of tropical fruit. His former experience in the jungle of Tarzan of the Apes had taught him which of the many growing things were edible and after nearly an hour of absence he returned to the beach with a little armful of food. The rain had ceased, and the hot sun was beating down so mercilessly upon her that Jane Porter insisted on making an immediate attempt to gain the land. Still further invigorated by the food Clayton had brought, the three were able to reach the half-shade of the small tree to which their boat was moored. Here, thoroughly exhausted, they threw themselves down to rest, sleeping until dark. For a month they lived upon the beach in comparative safety. As their strength returned, the two men constructed a rude shelter in the branches of a tree, high enough from the ground to ensure safety from the larger beasts of prey. By day they gathered fruits and trapped small rodents. At night they lay cowering within their frail shelter, while savage denizens of the jungle made hideous the hours of darkness. They slept upon litters of jungle grasses and for covering at night Jane Porter had only an old ulster that belonged to Clayton, the same garment that he had worn upon that memorable trip to the Wisconsin woods. Clayton had erected a frail portion of boughs to divide their arboreal shelter into two rooms, one for the girl and the other for Monsieur Thuran and himself. From the first the Russian had exhibited every trait of his true character—selfishness, boorishness, arrogance, cowardice, and lust— Twice had he and Clayton come to blows because of Thuran's attitude toward the girl. Clayton dared not leave her alone with him for an instant. The existence of the Englishman and his fiancée was one continual nightmare of horror, and yet they lived on in hope of ultimate rescue. Jane Porter's thoughts often reverted to her other experience on this savage shore. Ah, if the invincible forest god of that dead past were but with them now, no longer would there be aught to fear from prowling beasts or from the bestial Russian. She could not well refrain from comparing the scant protection afforded her by Clayton with what she might have expected had Tarzan of the Apes been for a single instant confronted by the sinister and menacing attitude of Monsieur Thuran. Once, when Clayton had gone to the little stream for water, and Thuran had spoken coarsely to her, she voiced her thoughts. "'It is well for you, Monsieur Thuran,' she said." "'that the poor Monsieur Tarzan who was lost from the ship that brought you "'and Miss Strong to Cape Town is not here now.' "'You knew the pig?' asked Thuran, with a sneer. "'I knew the man,' she replied. "'The only real man, I think, that I've ever known.' 
There was something in her tone of voice that led the Russian to attribute to her a deeper feeling for his enemy than friendship, and he grasped at the suggestion to be further revenged upon the man whom he supposed dead by besmirching his memory to the girl. "'He was worse than a pig,' he cried. "'He was a poltroon and a coward. To save himself from the righteous wrath of the husband of a woman he had wronged, he perjured his soul in an attempt to place the blame entirely upon her.' Not succeeding in this, he ran away from France to escape meeting the husband upon the field of honor. That is why he was on board the ship that bore Miss Strong and myself to Cape Town. I know whereof I speak, for the woman in the case is my sister. Something more I know that I've never told another. Your brave Monsieur Tarzan leaped overboard in an agony of fear because I recognized him and insisted that he make reparation to me the following morning. We could have fought with knives in my stateroom. Jane Porter laughed. You do not for a moment imagine that one who has known both Monsieur Tarzan and you could ever believe such an impossible tale? Then why did he travel under an assumed name? asked Monsieur Thuran. I do not believe you, she cried, but nevertheless the seed of suspicion was sown, for she knew that Hazel Strong had known her forest god only as John Caldwell of London. A scant five miles north of their rude shelter, all unknown to them, and practically as remote as though separated by thousands of miles of impenetrable jungle, lay the snug little cabin of Tarzan of the Apes. While farther up the coast, a few miles beyond the cabin, in crude but well-built shelters, lived a little party of eighteen souls, the occupants of the three boats from the Lady Alice from which Clayton's boat had become separated. Over a smooth sea they had rowed to the mainland in less than three days, None of the horrors of shipwreck had been theirs, and though depressed by sorrow, and suffering from the shock of the catastrophe and the unaccustomed hardships of their new existence, they were none much the worse for the experience. All were buoyed by the hope that the fourth boat had been picked up, and that a thorough search of the coast would be quickly made. As all the firearms and ammunition on the yacht had been placed in Lord Tennington's boat, the party was well equipped for defense, and for hunting the larger game for food. Professor Archimedes Q. Porter was their only immediate anxiety. Fully assured in his own mind that his daughter had been picked up by a passing steamer, he gave over the last vestige of apprehension concerning her welfare, and devoted his giant intellect solely to the consideration of these momentous and abstruse scientific problems, which he considered the only proper food for thought in one of his erudition. His mind appeared blank to the influence of all extraneous matters. Never! said the exhausted Mr. Samuel T. Fillander to Lord Tennington. Never has Professor Porter been more difficult, or, I might say, impossible. Why, only this morning, after I had been forced to relinquish my surveillance for a brief half-hour, he was entirely missing upon my return. And bless me, sir, where do you imagine I discovered him? A half a mile out in the ocean, sir, in one of the lifeboats, rowing away for dear life. I do not know how he attained even that magnificent distance from shore, for he had but a single oar, with which he was blissfully rowing about in circles. When one of the sailors had taken me out to him in another boat, the professor became quite indignant at my suggestion that we return at once to land. "'Why, Mr. Fillander,' he said, "'I'm surprised that you, sir, a man of letters yourself, should have the temerity so to interrupt the progress of science.' I had about deduced from certain astronomic phenomena I have had under minute observation during the past several tropic nights, 
an entirely new nebular hypothesis, which will unquestionably startle the scientific world. I wish to consult the very excellent monograph on Laplace's hypothesis, which I understand is in a certain private collection in New York City. Your interference, Mr. Philander, will result in an irreparable delay, for I was just rowing over to obtain this pamphlet. And it was with the greatest difficulty that I persuaded him to return to shore without resorting to force, concluded Mr. Philander. Miss Strong and her mother were very brave under the strain of almost constant apprehension of the attacks of savage beasts. Nor were they quite able to accept so readily as the others the theory that Jane, Clayton, and Monsieur Thuran had been picked up safely. Jane Porter's Esmeralda was in a constant state of tears at the cruel fate which had separated her from the poor little honey. Lord Tennington's great-hearted good nature never deserted him for a moment. He was still the jovial host, seeking always for the comfort and pleasure of his guests. With the men of his yacht he remained the just but firm commander. There was never any more question in the jungle than there had been on board the Lady Alice as to who was the final authority in all questions of importance, and in all emergencies requiring cool and intelligent leadership. Could this well-organized and comparatively secure party of castaways have seen the ragged, fear-haunted trio a few miles south of them, they would scarcely have recognized in them the formerly immaculate members of the little company that had laughed and played upon the Lady Alice. Clayton and Monsieur Thuran were almost naked, so torn had their clothes been by the thorn bushes and tangled vegetation of the matted jungle through which they had been compelled to force their way in search of their ever more difficult food supply. Jane Porter had, of course, not been subjected to these strenuous expeditions, but her apparel was, nevertheless, in a sad state of disrepair. Clayton, for lack of any better occupation, had carefully saved the skin of every animal they had killed. By stretching them upon the stems of trees and diligently scraping them, he had managed to save them in a fair condition, and now that his clothes were threatening to cover his nakedness no longer, he commenced to fashion a rude garment of them, using a sharp thorn for a needle, and bits of tough grass and animal tendons in lieu of thread. The result when completed was a sleeveless garment which fell nearly to his knees. As it was made up of numerous small pelts of different species of rodents, it presented a rather strange and wonderful appearance, which, together with the vile stench which permeated it, rendered it anything other than a desirable addition to a wardrobe. But the time came when, for the sake of decency, he was compelled to don it, and even the misery of their condition could not prevent Jane Porter from laughing heartily at the sight of him. Later, Thuran also found it necessary to construct a similar primitive garment, so that, with their bare legs and heavily bearded faces, they looked not unlike reincarnations of two prehistoric progenitors of the human race. Thuran acted like one. Nearly two months of this existence had passed when the first great calamity befell them. It was prefaced by an adventure which came near terminating abruptly the sufferings of two of them, terminating them in the grim and horrible manner of the jungle forever. Thuran, down with an attack of jungle fever, lay in the shelter among the branches of their tree of refuge. Clayton had been into the jungle a few hundred yards in search of food. As he returned, Jane Porter walked to meet him. Behind the man, cunning and crafty, crept an old and mangy lion. For three days his ancient thews and sinews had proved insufficient for the task of providing his cavernous belly with meat. For months he had eaten less and less frequently, and farther and farther had he roamed from his accustomed haunts in search of easier prey. At last he found nature's weakest and most defenseless creature. In a moment more, Numa would dine. 
Clayton, all unconscious of the lurking death behind him, strode out in the open toward Jane. He had reached her side a hundred feet from the tangled edge of jungle, when past his shoulder the girl saw the tawny head and the wicked yellow eyes as the grasses parted, and the huge beast, nose to the ground, stepped softly into view. So frozen with horror was she that she could utter no sound, but the fixed and terrified gaze of her fear-widened eyes spoke as plainly to Clayton as words. A quick glance behind him revealed the hopelessness of their situation. The lion was scarce thirty paces from them, and they were equally as far from the shelter. The man was armed with a stout stick, as efficacious against a hungry lion, he realized, as a toy popgun charged with a tethered cork. Numa, ravenous with hunger, had long since learned the futility of roaring and moaning as he searched for prey, but now that it was as surely his as though already he had felt the soft flesh beneath his still mighty paw, he opened his huge jaws and gave vent to his long-pent rage in a series of deafening roars that made the air tremble. "'Run, Jane!' cried Clayton. "'Quick! Run for the shelter!' But her paralyzed muscles refused to respond, and she stood mute and rigid, staring with ghastly countenance at the living death creeping toward them. The ran, at the sound of that awful roar, had come to the opening of the shelter, and as he saw the tableau below him, he hopped up and down, shrieking to them in Russian. "'Run! Run!' he cried. "'Run, or I shall be left all alone in this horrible place!' and then he broke down and commenced to weep. For a moment this new voice distracted the attention of the lion, who halted to cast an inquiring glance in the direction of the tree. Clayton could endure the strain no longer. Turning his back upon the beast, he buried his head in his arms and waited. The girl looked at him in horror. Why did he not do something? If he must die, why not die like a man, bravely, beating at that terrible face with his puny stick, no matter how futile it might be? Would Tarzan of the apes have done this? Would he not at least have gone down to his death fighting heroically to the last? Now the lion was crouching for the spring that would end their young lives beneath the cruel, rending yellow fangs. Jane Porter sank to her knees in prayer, closing her eyes to shut out the last hideous instant. Doran, weak from fever, fainted. Seconds dragged into minutes, long minutes into an eternity, and yet the beast did not spring. Clayton was almost unconscious from the prolonged agony of fright. His knees trembled. A moment more and he would collapse. Jane Porter could endure it no longer. She opened her eyes. Could she be dreaming? William, she whispered. Look! Clayton mastered himself sufficiently to raise his head and turn toward the lion. An expression of surprise burst from his lips. At their very feet the beast lay crumpled in death. A heavy war spear protruded from the tawny hide. It had entered the great back above the right shoulder, and passing entirely through the body, had pierced the savage heart. Jane Porter had risen to her feet. As Clayton turned back to her, she staggered in weakness. He put out his arms to save her from falling, and drew her close to him, pressing her head against his shoulder. He stooped to kiss her in thanksgiving. Gently the girl pushed him away. "'Please do not do that, William.' she said. I have lived a thousand years in the past brief moments. I have learned in the face of death how to live. I do not wish to hurt you more than is necessary, but I can no longer bear to live out the impossible position I have attempted because of a false sense of loyalty to an impulsive promise I made you. The last few seconds of my life have taught me that it would be hideous to attempt further to deceive myself and you, 
or to entertain for an instant longer the possibility of ever becoming your wife, should we regain civilization. "'Why, Jane!' he cried. "'What do you mean? What has our providential rescue to do with altering your feelings toward me? You are but unstrung. Tomorrow you will be yourself again.' "'I am more nearly myself this minute than I have been for over a year,' she replied. "'The thing that has just happened is again forced to my memory "'the fact that the bravest man that ever lived honored me with his love. "'Until it was too late, I did not realize that I returned it, "'and so I sent him away. "'He is dead now, and I shall never marry. "'I certainly could not wed another less brave than he "'without harboring constantly a feeling of contempt "'for the relative cowardice of my husband. "'Do you understand me?' "'Yes,' he answered, with bowed head, his face mantling with the flush of shame. And it was the next day that the great calamity befell. We'll begin Chapter 22, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 22, The Treasure Vaults of Opar. It was quite dark before La, the high priestess, returned to the chamber of the dead with food and drink for Tarzan. She bore no light, feeling with her hands along the crumbling walls until she gained the chamber. Through the stone grating above, a tropic moon served dimly to, to illuminate the interior. Tarzan, crouching in the shadows at the far side of the room as the first sound of approaching footsteps reached him, came forth to meet the girl as he recognized that it was she. "'They are furious,' were her first words. "'Never before has a human sacrifice escaped the altar. "'Already fifty have gone forth to track you down. "'They have searched the temple. "'All save this single room.' "'Why do they fear to come here?' he asked. "'This is the chamber of the dead. "'Here the dead return to worship. "'See this ancient altar? "'It is here that the dead sacrifice the living, "'if they find a victim here. "'That is the reason our people shun this chamber.' Were one to enter, he knows that the waiting dead would seize him for their sacrifice. "'But you?' he asked. "'I am high priestess. I alone am safe from the dead. It is I who at rare intervals bring them a human sacrifice from the world above. I alone may enter here in safety.' "'Why have they not seized me?' he asked, humoring her grotesque belief. She looked at him quizzically for a moment. Then she replied, it is the duty of a high priestess to instruct, to interpret, according to the creed that others, wiser than herself, have laid down. But there is nothing in the creed which says that she must believe. The more one knows of one's religion, the less one believes. No one living knows more of mine than I. Then your only fear in aiding me to escape is that your fellow mortals may discover your duplicity. That is all. The dead are dead. They cannot harm or help. We must therefore depend entirely upon ourselves, and the sooner we act, the better it will be. I had difficulty in eluding their vigilance, but now in bringing you this morsel of food. To attempt to repeat the thing daily would be the height of folly. Come, let us see how far we may go toward liberty before I must return. She led him back to the chamber beneath the altar room. Here she turned into one of the several corridors leading from it. In the darkness Tarzan could not see which one. For ten minutes they groped slowly along a winding passage until at length they came to a closed door. Here he heard her fumbling with a key, and presently came the sound of a metal bolt grating against metal. The door swung in on scraping hinges, and they entered. "'You will be safe here until tomorrow night,' she said. 
that she went out and closing the door, locked it behind her. Where Tarzan stood it was dark as Erebus. Not even his trained eyes could penetrate the utter blackness. Cautiously he moved forward until his outstretched hand touched a wall. Then very slowly he traveled around the four walls of the chamber. Apparently it was about twenty feet square. The floor was of concrete, the walls of the dry masonry that marked the method of construction above ground. Small pieces of granite of various sizes were ingeniously laid together without mortar to construct these ancient foundations. The first time around the walls, Tarzan thought he detected a strange phenomenon for a room with no windows but a single door. Again, he crept carefully around close to the wall. No, he could not be mistaken. He paused before the center of the wall opposite the door. For a moment he stood quite motionless. Then he moved a few feet to one side. Again he returned, only to move a few feet to the other side. Once more he made the entire circuit of the room, feeling carefully every foot of the walls. Finally he stopped again before a particular section that had aroused his curiosity. There was no doubt of it. A distinct draft of fresh air was blowing into the chamber through the intersection of the masonry at that particular point, and nowhere else. Tarzan tested several pieces of the granite which made up the wall at this spot, and finally was rewarded by finding one which lifted out readily. It was about ten inches wide, with a face some three by six inches showing within the chamber. One by one the ape-man lifted out similarly shaped stones. The wall at this point was constructed entirely, it seemed, of these almost perfect slabs. In a short time he had removed some dozen. When he reached in to test the next layer of masonry, to his surprise, he felt nothing behind the masonry he had removed as far as his long arm could reach. It was a matter of but a few minutes to remove enough of the wall to permit his body to pass through the aperture. Directly ahead of him he thought he discerned a faint glow, scarcely more than a less impenetrable darkness. Cautiously he moved forward on hands and knees, until at about fifteen feet, or the average thickness of the foundation walls. The floor ended abruptly in a sudden drop. As far out as he could reach he felt nothing, nor could he find the bottom of the black abyss that yawned before him, though, clinging to the edge of the floor, he lowered his body into the darkness to its full length. Finally it occurred to him to look up, and there above him he saw through a round opening a tiny circular patch of starry sky. Feeling up along the sides of the shaft as far as he could reach, the ape-man discovered that so much of the wall as he could feel converged toward the center of the shaft as it rose. This fact precluded possibility of escape in that direction. As he sat speculating on the nature and uses of this strange passage and its terminal shaft, the moon topped the opening above, letting a flood of soft, silvery light into the shadowy place. Instantly the nature of the shaft became apparent to Tarzan, for far below him he saw the shimmering surface of water. He had come upon an ancient well, but what was the purpose of the connection between the well and the dungeon in which he had been hidden? As the moon crossed the opening of the shaft, its light flooded the whole interior, and then Tarzan saw directly across from him another opening in the opposite wall. He wondered if this might not be the mouth of the passage leading to the possible escape. It would be worth investigating, at least, and this he determined to do. Quickly returning to the wall he had demolished to explore what lay beyond it, he carried the stones into the passageway and replaced them from that side. The deep deposit of dust which he had noticed upon the blocks as he had first removed them from the wall had convinced him that even if the present occupants of the ancient pile had knowledge of this hidden passage, 
They had made no use of it for perhaps generations. The wall replaced, Tarzan turned to the shaft, which was some fifteen feet wide at this point. To leap across the intervening space was a small matter to the ape-man, and a moment later he was proceeding along a narrow tunnel, moving cautiously for fear of being precipitated into another shaft such as he had just crossed. He had advanced some hundred feet when he came to a flight of steps leading downward into Stygian gloom. Some twenty feet below, the level floor of the tunnel recommenced, and shortly afterward his progress was stopped by a very heavy wooden door, which was secured by massive wooden bars upon the side of Tarzan's approach. This fact suggested to the ape-man that he might surely be in a passageway leading to the outer world, for the bolts, barring progress from the opposite side, tended to substantiate this hypothesis, unless it were merely a prison to which it led. Along the tops of the bars were deep layers of dust, a further indication that the passage had lain long unused. As he pushed the massive obstacle aside, its great hinges shrieked out in weird protest against this unaccustomed disturbance. For a moment Tarzan paused to listen for any responsive note which might indicate that the unusual night noise had alarmed the inmates of the temple. But as he heard nothing, he advanced beyond the doorway. Carefully feeling about, he found himself within a large chamber, along the walls of which, and down the length of the floor, were piled many tiers of metal ingots of an odd though uniform shape. To his groping hands they felt not unlike double-headed bootjacks. The ingots were quite heavy, and but for the enormous number of them he would have been positive that they were gold. But the thought of the fabulous wealth these thousands of pounds of metal would have represented were they in reality gold almost convinced him that they must be of some baser metal. At the far end of the chamber he discovered another barred door, and again the bars upon the inside renewed the hope that he was traversing an ancient and forgotten passageway to liberty. Beyond the door the passage ran straight as a war spear, and it soon became evident to the ape-man that it had already led him beyond the outer walls of the temple. If he but knew the direction it was leading him, if toward the west, then he must also be beyond the city's outer walls. With increasing hopes he forged ahead as rapidly as he dared, until at the end of half an hour he came to another flight of steps leading upward. At the bottom this flight was of concrete, but as he ascended his naked feet felt a sudden change in the substance they were treading. The steps of concrete had given place to steps of granite. Feeling with his hands, the ape-man discovered that these latter were evidently hewed from rock, for there was no crack to indicate a joint. For a hundred feet the steps wound spirally up, until at a sudden turning Tarzan came into a narrow cleft between two rocky walls. Above him shone the starry sky, and before him a steep incline replaced the steps that had terminated at its foot. Up this pathway Tarzan hastened, and at its upper end came out upon the rough top of a huge granite boulder. A mile away lay the ruined city of Opar, its domes and turrets bathed in the soft light of the equatorial moon. Tarzan dropped his eyes to the ingot he had brought away with him. For a moment he examined it by the moon's bright rays. Then he raised his head to look out upon the ancient piles of crumbling grandeur in the distance. "'Opar,' he mused. "'Opar, the enchanted city of a dead and forgotten past. The city of the beauties and the beasts. City of horrors and death. But city of fabulous riches.' The ingot was of virgin gold. 
The boulder on which Tarzan found himself lay well out in the plain between the city and the distant cliffs he and his black warriors had scaled the morning previous. To descend its rough and precipitous face was a task of infinite labor and considerable peril, even to the ape-man. But at last he felt the soft soil of the valley beneath his feet, and without a backward glance at Opar he turned his face toward the guardian cliffs, and at a rapid trot set off across the valley. The sun was just rising as he gained the summit of the flat mountain at the valley's western boundary, for beneath him he saw smoke arising above the treetops of the forest at the base of the foothills. "'Man!' he murmured. "'And there were fifty who went forth to track me down. "'Can it be they?' Swiftly he descended the face of the cliff, and dropping into a narrow ravine which led down to the far forest, he hastened onward in the direction of the smoke. Striking the forest's edge about a quarter of a mile from the point at which the slender column arose into the still air, he took to the trees. Cautiously he approached until there suddenly burst upon his view a rude boma, in the center of which, squatted about their tiny fires, sat his fifty black waziri. He called to them in their own tongue. "'Arise, my children!' "'and greet thy king!' "'With exclamations of surprise and fear "'the warriors leaped to their feet, "'scarcely knowing whether to flee or not. "'Then Tarzan dropped lightly "'from an overhanging branch into their midst. "'When they realized that it was indeed "'their chief in the flesh "'and no materialized spirit, "'they went mad with joy. "'We were cowards, O Waziri!' "'cried Busuli. "'We ran away and left you to your fate.' "'but when our panic was over we swore to return and save you, "'or at least take revenge upon your murderers. "'We were but now preparing to scale the heights once more "'and cross the desolate valley to the terrible city. "'Have you seen fifty frightful men pass down from the cliffs "'into this forest, my children?' asked Tarzan. "'Yes, Waziri,' replied Basuli. "'They passed us late yesterday, "'as we were about to turn back after you. "'They had no woodcraft. "'We heard them coming for a mile before we saw them.' "'and as we had no other business in hand, "'we withdrew into the forest and let them pass. "'They were waddling rapidly along upon short legs, "'and now and then one would go upon all fours "'like Bogani, the gorilla. "'They were indeed fifty frightful men, Waziri. "'When Tarzan had related his adventures "'and told him of the yellow metal he had found, "'not one demurred when he outlined a plan "'to return by night "'and bring away what they could carry of the vast treasure.' And so it was that as dusk fell across the desolate valley of Opar, fifty Ebon warriors trailed at a smart trot over the dry and dusty ground toward the giant boulder that loomed before the city. If it had seemed a difficult task to descend the face of the boulder, Tarzan soon found that it would be next to impossible to get his fifty warriors to the summit. Finally the feat was accomplished by dint of Herculean efforts upon the part of the ape-man. Ten spears were fastened end to end, and with one end of this remarkable chain attached to his waist, Tarzan at last succeeded in reaching the summit. Once there, he drew up one of his warriors, and in this way the entire party was finally landed in safety upon the boulder's top. Immediately Tarzan led them to the treasure chamber, where to each was allotted a load of two ingots, for each about eighty pounds. By midnight the entire party stood once more at the foot of the boulder, but with their heavy loads it was mid-forenoon ere they reached the summit of the cliffs. From there on the homeward journey was slow, as these proud fighting men were unaccustomed to the duties of porters. But they bore their burdens uncomplainingly, and at the end of thirty days entered their own country. Here, instead of continuing on toward the northwest and their village, Tarzan guided them almost directly west 
until on the morning of the thirty-third day he bade them break camp and return to their own village, leaving the gold where they had stacked it the previous night. "'And you, Waziri?' they asked. "'I shall remain here for a few days, my children,' he replied. "'Now hasten back to thy wives and children.' When they had gone, Tarzan gathered up two of the ingots and, springing into a tree, ran lightly above the tangled and impenetrable mass of undergrowth for a couple of hundred yards, to emerge suddenly upon a circular clearing about which the giants of the jungle forest towered like a guardian host. In the center of this natural amphitheater was a little flat-topped mound of hard earth. Hundreds of times before had Tarzan been to this secluded spot, which was so densely surrounded by thorn bushes and tangled vines and creepers of huge girth that not even Sheeta the leopard could worm his sinuous way within nor Tantor, with his giant strength, forced the barriers which protected the council chamber of the great apes from all but the harmless denizens of the savage jungle. Fifty trips Tarzan made before he had deposited all the gold ingots within the precincts of the amphitheater. Then, from the hollow of an ancient, lightning-blasted tree, he produced the very spade with which he had uncovered the chest of Professor Archimedes Q. Porter, which he had once, ape-like, buried in this selfsame spot. With this spade he dug a long trench, into which he laid the fortune that his natives had carried from the forgotten treasure vaults of the city of Opar. That night he slept within the amphitheater, and early the next morning set out to revisit his cabin before returning to his waziri. Finding things as he had left them, he went forth into the jungle to hunt, intending to bring his prey to the cabin where he might feast in comfort, spending the night upon a comfortable couch. For five miles toward the south he roamed, toward the banks of a fair-sized river that flowed into the sea about six miles from his cabin. He had gone inland about a half a mile when there came suddenly to his trained nostrils the one scent that sets the whole savage jungle a-quiver. Tarzan smelled man. The wind was blowing off the ocean, so Tarzan knew that the authors of the scent were west of him. Mixed with the man-scent was the scent of Numa. Man and lion. I had better hasten, thought the ape-man, for he had recognized the scent of whites. Numa may be a hunting. When he came through the trees to the edge of the jungle, he saw a woman kneeling in prayer, and before her stood a wild, primitive-looking white man, his face buried in his arms. Behind the man a mangy lion was advancing slowly toward this easy prey. The man's face was averted. The woman's bowed in prayer. He could not see the features of either. Already Numa was about to spring. There was not a second to spare. Tarzan could not even unsling his bow and fit an arrow in time to send one of his deadly poisoned shafts into the yellow hide. He was too far away to reach the beast in time with his knife. There was but a single hope, a lone alternative, and with the quickness of thought, the ape-man acted. A brawny arm flew back, for the briefest fraction of an instant a huge spear poised above the giant's shoulder, and then the mighty arm shot out, and swift death tore through the intervening leaves to bury itself in the heart of the leaping lion." Without a sound, he rolled over at the very feet of his intended victims, dead. For a moment, neither the man nor the woman moved. Then the latter opened her eyes to look with wonder upon the dead beast behind her companion. As that beautiful head went up, Tarzan of the Apes gave a gasp of incredulous astonishment. Was he mad? It could not be the woman he loved. But indeed, it was none other. And the woman rose, and the man took her in his arms to kiss her, and of a sudden the ape-man saw red through a bloody mist of murder, and the old scar upon his forehead burned scarlet against his brown hide. 
There was a terrible expression upon his savage face as he fitted a poison shaft to his bow. An ugly light gleamed in those gray eyes as he sighted full at the back of the unsuspecting man beneath him. For an instant he glanced along the polished shaft, drawing the bowstring far back, that the arrow might pierce through the heart for which it was aimed. But he did not release the fatal messenger. Slowly the point of the arrow drooped. The scar upon the brown forehead faded. The bowstring relaxed, and Tarzan of the Apes, with bowed head, turned sadly into the jungle toward the village of the Waziri. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. We have some new reviews I wanted to share with you. The first one, I love the 1001 series, five stars. I'm subscribed to several, and I love them all. That one from Solitary Confinement at Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, great stories for my commute. I love the stories you choose, and your voice is great for reading aloud. Listening to your podcast makes my 45-minute commute much more enjoyable. That one from SDO 1961, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, all stories, five stars. Fabulous. Prager U has many excellent podcasts, but you have the very best stories, and you're the very best storyteller so far. Thanks. Fred Nelson. That one from Fritz 19, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you very much for your reviews. It helps to bring new listeners to us, and we appreciate that very much. Don't forget to tune in next week for Chapters 23 and 24 of The Return of Tarzan. We'll be there next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.